This is Purple Radio On Demand. We are absolutely shaped by debates in the present. I would definitely echo your call for a much more historical awareness of political science. To understand politics and really to understand any subject, you need to know the history. Hello and welcome to Dead Current, a podcast by History and Politics, where we look at current affairs through the lens of history. My name is Emily Glynn. And I'm Hattie Pandelli. Today we're looking at conflict, peace building and the role of memory in politics. We are delighted to be joined by Olga Dimitriou, Associate Professor in Post-Conflict Reconstruction, and Stephanie Kapler, Associate Professor in Conflict Resolution and Peace Building, both from the School of Government and International Affairs here at Durham University. Olga's research has focused on issues of minority rights, gender displacement and refugeehood, primarily in relation to Cyprus, Greece and Turkey. Stephanie's research is particularly interested in the contested and transformative nature of local imaginations of peace and has conducted fieldwork in numerous countries, including Bosnia-Herzegovina, South Africa, Cyprus and Kosovo. Thank you for joining us. Would you both like to tell us a little more about your research focus? So I'm um, Olga. Uh, my work has an anthropological uh, focus um, generally, and I'm looking at um, the way in which law impacts on the everyday. So recent, the last project that I spent quite a few years on uh, was looking at how the idea of refugeehood in Cyprus has um, determined uh, different um, different aspects of the ways in which society works, going from the beginnings of the Cyprus conflict and displacements that were um, either uh, recognized or silenced, um, and then displacements that became um, very important in um, the, uh, the way in which history was understood on the island. Um, and then finally, the way in which now recent uh, migrations and, and recent displacements um, are being impacted by those previous understandings of refugeehood. Hi, I'm Stephanie, and thanks for the introductions. My, my own research, as you already said, is quite interested in our ideas of what the local is. And I think that's a term that's very much been brought up in peacebuilding intervention kinds of contexts, where we always assume that there is a local who's receiving intervention and what I'm actually interested in is a much more dynamic and active idea of what and who the local is a much more differentiated idea um, in terms of who not just receives peace peace building but co-shapes it resists it um, and defines it on on their own terms Um, and to that end I've taken different approaches um, focused for a very long time on, on the peace-building process in Bosnia-Herzegovina and taken an interest in how specifically arts and artists develop ways of understanding local responses to peace-building. More recently, I've, I've worked more on, um, on South Africa, where peace-building is slightly different because it's less internationally driven, um, more, more of a national effort, but still quite contested in, in so many ways. Um, I'm quite interested in how memories of the past impact upon the imagination of you know, what, what could be called a new future for the nation, um, and not just in, in terms of apartheid, but a longer term view that takes into account colonialism. And that kind of ties in with a new research project I'm just getting started on, which is uh, looking at 
decolonizing peace, in, peace education in Africa is a very broad theme and is, is working with a number of um, partners in different African countries um, and is led by the Open University to, um, to be able to work with communities and find out whether, whether we can find ways of dealing with our research in a less colonial way than we have in the past. Thank you both for um, telling us a little bit more. That was really interesting. Um, if we want to start this conversation with a really broad question, um, do you think there's more peace in the world now than there has been historically? I think it's a very difficult question because it really depends on what you mean by peace. Because very often, you know, people talk about peace when there is a lot of violence still happening. So again, if we're taking a long-term perspective, I'm thinking of colonial, colonialism, empire, colonial practices, people wouldn't necessarily have thought of them as war in that sense. But I'm not sure if we take an understanding of positive peace, which is not just, well, it's not even positive peace, it's not negative peace, because in a way there was lots of violence, we just didn't think about it as war. And I, th I think today that is still one of the issues in terms of how we relate both to the past and the present. Um, I think peace is often quite controversial because it's a contested term and it's often used in the sense of pacification, I would have said. You know, in a way, as long as we keep, keep the lid on, there is peace, but of course all the kind of structural injustices that simmer under the surface, they're often not taken into account. And once you kind of unpack these contestations around the definitions of peace, it becomes almost impossible to quantify and you know to compare to different times because there was always ups and downs in terms of violence and peace and it really depends on whose perspective you're taking in terms of deciding whether a place a region a community is at peace or at war looking a little bit more perhaps at those complex uh, definitions of peace often we overlook the simple fact that agents of peace building uh, aim to eliminate the frictions uh, but actually the process of peace building can create further frictions too. Could you perhaps expand on that? I think in the literature that we look at nowadays, it's, it's very clear that peace building sometimes introduces more problems than the ones it solves. Um, one of the big criticisms towards peace building is that it's often been very top-down and very very ignorant of the kinds of not just local needs um, but also contextual givens of wherever said intervention takes place. I think that's almost a mild criticism which can perhaps be taken further and has been taken further by other scholars who've actually said well peace building in itself is just a euphemism um, for for an operation which very much serves the interests of those intervening and it's just you know a nice term in which something much more you know interventionary in, in, in a very negative sense can be coined it's a way of legitimizing your foreign policy interests in, a, in another region which is the more cynical kind of view and if you're looking at um, different places where peace building has taken place so the one I've been working with um, Bosnia-Herzegovina of course peace building has kind of stabilized the situation in which it's it's done some power sharing so you know the different majority ethnic groups they've got representation in parliament in the government and so on 
So in a way, it's kind of stabilized a situation, but at the same time, it's also led to the exclusion of those who don't identify with those categories, other minorities. It's actually created a scenario in a way of a deadlock that people cannot get out of because it's, it's, it, it came with a constitution. The whole operation came with a constitution that now can only be changed if all the majority ethnic groups are going to agree to it. So in a way, yes, it's helped end violence in the in the short run but in the long term it's created additional problems and i would say we can looking at it from uh, my perspective um, of cyprus i would say we can we can see those effects in in a much longer running um, conflict here where stability has been um, has been here um, and where um, the, the problem now of peace building is really about getting past the deadlock. Um, we, are, we haven't really been seeing uh, huge problems of violence uh, for the last few decades, uh, but there is a very clear problem of getting past this deadlock. To uh, extend the conversation on the nature of conflict today, um, do you think history or historic memory has a part to play in the conflicts around the world today? And if so, how? I think we are very aware that memory is nothing that relates to the past at all. Well, it, it does relate to the past, but it actually is something that relates, it tells us more about the present than about the past. Um, in a way to understand current conflict, it's very illuminating to look at how the past is remembered but because it tells you how certain stories actors places even myths are activated to inform contemporary conflicts so if we don't understand the ways in which societies relate to their past and the contestations around that we might actually miss out a very important part of what is going on in terms of conflicts in the present. Um, in a way, it only tells us half the story because we often think of ourselves as informed by the past. We think of our identities as shaped by, by the, the commonality of our community, by our state, our nation potentially, by our ethnic group, by our gender, by our sexuality, and so on and so forth. And all the stories that we tell about ourselves, they feed into conflicts that we have these days, but they are very much informed by how we understand ourselves in the past, both on an individual and, and a collective level. And of course, I would add from an anthropological perspective that these are precisely the things that give us also the tools to understand new events. Um, so these are, even if we're not looking at the same conflict, um, we, they are what we uh, use in order to manage new situations. So um, we, by looking at that kind of um, historical uh, memory, um, we would be better able to understand what is happening, that is new conflicts um, that are happening that seem to be otherwise unrelated to um, those past events. I think looking at um, how uh, reconstruction happens at the more popular levels of society, if a conflict is perhaps in living memory, how does this uh, affect reconstruction and progress, if at all? Does a population with their own memories and experiences pose any barriers to the process of reconstruction? I think that is, again, another interesting question, and I think it can work both ways. I've, I've been in a lot of contexts where... Uh, we take it almost for granted that people who remember the violence will be 
less willing to uh, to make peace. Um, and I think in, it doesn't always um, hold. Um, if I'm looking again at the context of Cyprus with this um, very long history of, uh, of stalemate and with people who remember the violence and people who don't remember the violence, um, sometimes we see that the people who have grown up with the, with the stories, that especially the, uh, the stories that have become formalized and have sort of um, become this um, scripted um, um, history, um, almost in, in the formal sense, uh, will be um, less, um, uh, less prone uh, to, uh, to reconciliation. Uh, they, because the people who uh, remember the violence um, often are also the people who remember the coexistence and they're also the people uh, who, uh, who remember how the violence uh, came to be. So I think it's important to remember that history does get shaped, the stories get shaped uh, as well. Uh, so um, it's, um, there is always a negotiation to be made between what is remembered, what is lost, uh, and, and what, is, uh, what is reconstructed in the memory too. Um, if I can just add to this, it's interestingly, I think not just unique to Cyprus, and I, I, I observed similar tendencies in Bosnia-Herzegovina, but there's always long been an assumption that the generation born after the war in the 90s, they will be the ones to be more peaceful and to reconstruct the country. Now, the problem is that they go to different schools. Um, they've grown up with the myth of violence and nationalism, they go to different schools, they don't meet each other very often. So for them it's actually really hard because they're trying to also honor the legacy to the previous generations who fought in the war. So for them it's actually quite hard to, you know, in inverted commas, reconcile because they've not really had the kind of engagement with, with the other that, that the previous generations have had and you will often find that generations who lived through the war, they first still remember the horrors and they don't want that again, most likely, um, because they remember how bad it was. And war is not usually something that people really enjoy. It's most often something that people really suffer from and don't want to see ever again. But also because they remember times when society wasn't ethnically divided. They remember the times when it was possible to be Yugoslavian in that case. Um, and, and they have very good memories of living together. And sometimes those memories are very inspirational for peace. So again, I would try to challenge the idea that memories can be an obstacle to reconstruction. Because I think if that's the case, then there's something wrong with reconstruction. Because reconstruction should be about taking into account memories of violence, but also of peace, in order to build peace in a contextual way, rather than an abstract way where you, you, know, you, you develop a new painting on a blank canvas that is doomed to fail, I would say. So it sounds like um, what you're both saying is that actually it being in living memory maybe isn't such a problem. And particularly what you said, Olga, I found that really interesting about um, perhaps once these historical narratives develop um, and they become quite fixed, that's when perhaps it becomes more difficult. So do you think that for incoming governments and regimes is very important that they address these historical conflicts and issues um, to keep reconstruction going? Yeah, I think it's crucially important that they do so. But 
the problem I think is not that they don't recognize how important it is. Um, I think uh, it is exactly that they recognize that it is important and, and they take uh, specific actions in terms of rewriting the history, teaching the history in, in schools and Stephanie's absolutely right, schools are um, the uh, a key to this. Um, so I think um, governments know what they're doing um, and they're doing it with a specific purpose in mind and we have um, lots of instances and, uh, and lots of research um, about um, good practices in, in history and having multi, multiple perspectives on history, on how to teach those perspectives. Um, I don't think there is any dearth of uh, literature and of, uh, of knowledge uh, about this, but there's also a lot of conflict because it's a very contested argument to make. Um, and in, in a situation where um, in a post-conflict um, era, uh, the, um, uh, uh, the different stakes have not really been settled yet, uh, then sides will be, uh, will be very unwilling to, uh, to make that, to take that extra um, step. Because it also means that um, a lot of the time, uh, it, it, it's something that will start unilaterally. So it's, it's something that is constantly under uh, negoti negotiation as well. What I find interesting in this context is perhaps to look at this as a global process rather than something that just happens in post-conflict countries. I'm thinking specifically of what is currently going on with what you could call the statue wars in the UK. Um, that's actually very related. How do you deal with memorials to a colonial legacy. And if you're thinking about governments curating public spaces, putting up monuments, that it's a very conscious decision to leave a monument or to take one down. It's a way of shaping the ways in which you look at your own history in relation to other countries, for example. Um, even in Durham itself, the statue at the marketplace, I understand, is quite a contested one. And, and the council has actually had a, a tough time over history deciding whether it should stay or go or be modified. So I think um, that is a process that affects us here as well. I think obviously looking at this conversation um, to do with the past and its relevance today and whether um, these um, past figures still hold relevance in our society today, it raises a really interesting conversation and really theoretical idea on the topic of apology and how far we are responsible for the past. Apologies are important because they have to come with an acknowledgement of wrongdoings of the past. You cannot neglect the importance of an apology um, because it, it has two sides. One of it is the symbolic side, acknowledging what has happened, which means respecting the dignity of the victim. But I think it also has a material side, which is a question of reparations, because if you apologize, it's usually not enough just saying it, but if, if it has come with an injustice, you often have to pay reparations. So apologies, I think, are extremely important, but of course, a lot of governments are very hesitant to formally apologize because not only does it mean to recognize your own wrongdoings in the past and they're very often quite substantial but it also means that you have to think about what it means for the present and governments are very reluctant to make that very substantial move. Apologies are important and 
crucial to the process of peace building but aren't really enough on their own and Stephanie your work in particular focuses on the role of art in the peace building process could you perhaps expand on this for uh, the sake of our listeners like how do arts aid peace building that's a very multifaceted question I suppose because there's many ways of for the arts and artists to contribute to peace building but there is also ways for the arts and artists to undermine peace building. So there is very different aspects um, to art. They're not always necessarily intrinsically peaceful because sometimes they don't want to be. Sometimes they, they want to challenge the peace that is being built because artists may not be in agreement that this is a good kind of peace. They could also deliberately undermine peace building because you know, they could be co-opted in a way. So art itself, I think, is a platform for many different interests that can be voiced. They've been used for militaristic or nationalistic purposes, but they've also been used for very progressive work in terms of peace building. I think perhaps just to give you a bit of a flavor to this, I think art can be a very important factor in terms of carrying memory. It can provide a language for people who don't feel comfortable speaking out in the public sphere, um, who don't have access to, you know, channels of political power to actually express themselves in, in different ways. Um, so it's a language that just opens the space and gives access to more people to actually enter a political debate without necessarily officially doing so, but actually expressing their own thoughts in very different ways. I read some of your work to do with um, Greece and you talk about the history of Greece, noticing that uh, the treaties after particular conflicts and wars, which ended the fighting, um, often erased and redrew different borders and boundaries. Could you perhaps elaborate um, on how through the creation of these new boundaries and thus different communities, there was quite a large um, displacement of people and the emergence of different minorities were created? So in my early work, um, I have looked at the, um, uh, the, the Turkey, what Turkey calls a Turkish minority in Greece, what Greece calls the Muslim minority uh, in Greece. Um, and these were, um, these are people living in uh, Western Thrace uh, on the Greek side of the Greek-Turkish border. Um, they became minority because the, uh, both uh, the Greek and Turkish states, as we know them today, uh, more or less in the uh, current boundaries, not exactly, uh, were really consolidated in 1923. And the treaty that did that was, uh, an exchange was, uh, it had attached to it a massive exchange of populations whereby um, the Christians who used to live in what then became Turkey um, following the Ottoman Empire came to uh, Greece, which at that point expanded its borders and Muslims um, were forced to go to Turkey. Of course, in that massive movement, uh, you had populations who were Christians but spoke Turkish, uh, who were um, uh, Christians but sort of, you know, had um, other identities, uh, who were uh, Muslims but spoke uh, Greek. Uh, so within, after that exchange, um, we have um, a series of observations by different scholars about how these populations adapted to their new, uh, to the new location, let alone the fact that um, uh, the general uh, population of refugees 
um, had a um, quite a traumatic uh, time adapting to the new uh, homeland. Uh, now, apart from those populations, you also had exceptions to this uh, to this exchange. So you had the Greeks of Istanbul and um, two of the Aegean islands that went to Turkey remaining uh, where they were and remaining as minorities. And the same happened for the population that I mentioned earlier that I worked on, um, who were uh, Muslims who stayed in the area of Western Thrace. And those, of course, became minorities. So together with the establishment of the states, you had this uh, huge refugee problem that the st two states were asked to uh, deal with, as well as a regime of minority uh, minority protections, um, and and that created um, a whole set of issues about how the two states then related to each other, um, to do with how those populations were being managed. So to carry on um, the theme of borders, which Emily mentioned, and um, Olga, you were just talking about all the issues that were caused by borders being moved. I'm just quite interested to know, to kind of bring it back to our focus on history. Um, when we do get cross-border conflicts, um, do you find that um, the historical narrative on either side of the border um, borders around the same events um, differentiate. I know, I think in some of your work, Stephanie, you talk about um, conflicting um, memories. Um, I'm just interested to know um, how the narratives differ. I think generally where there's conflict, there's conflict about histories and memories more often than not. That can be divided by state borders, but also within a state. So um, I think there's often little boundaries you know, even within countries where you find different versions of history at different um, at different levels. So, to to give you one example, um, with our project on art and peace formation, we worked with a partner in uh, the the town of Mostar, which is in Bosnia Herzegovina. Um, it is a divided city, you could say, in the sense that that there is two majority ethnic communities. Um, and since the war, there has been very little interaction between the two how that actually plays a role is not just because the children tend to go to either different schools or to, to the same school, but in different shifts, so they don't meet. They, they learn different subjects. They speak technically the same language, but it's called a different language. So, you know, one group of students will learn Croatian, the other one will learn Bosnian, but it, it's Bosnian, but it's the same language with different variations to it. So that's that's a subtle ways in which these uh, different narratives come into being. But it's also, it's very ingrained in your everyday life because for example, the former frontline, that street that continues to divide the city has two names. And depending on which community you're from, you're going to refer to that street by this name or by that name. So in a way, that's very much about how you define yourself and your identity by saying, well, I speak either Croatian or Bosnian. You know, if you say that, you're already identified. If you refer to the street by this name or that name, people know which community you're part of. So you get that at very small scale, micro level kinds of communities as well. 
and here we're talking about how history is remembered on either side of a border, whether that's within a nation or um, between nations. But also, Stephanie, your work has touched on how history is remembered um, that due to globalisation, it's not actually necessarily tied to a specific material place, but instead can operate within transnational memory spaces. And how um, is memory transformed to speak to a global audience? And are there any dangers in the degree of selectivity in this process? I think very much so. Um, the dangers are very present. Um, so some of the research I've done with, with a colleague from Sweden, Professor Annika Björkdahl, has very much has looked at specifically two sites, one, one museum in Sarajevo in Bosnia that commemorates this, the, the genocide in Srebrenica and the other one being Robben Island in South Africa, which is a prisoner island where the apartheid regime used to basically uh, imprison uh, people like, you know, famously Nelson Mandela, but of course he wasn't the only one. There was many people imprisoned uh, on that. And what you can see with how this more global memory is shaped is of course that it's being marketed to tourists because it has to raise money, for example, or because it speaks to, to an audience. And it needs, you know, going back to what we earlier said about apologies, it's calling for recognition, the recognition of certain atrocities to which, you know, global actors have, have taken part in. So it's got different aspects. The danger with this is always that it's going to lose touch with the local communities. So there were quite a few discussions to specifically speak about Robben Island, about what to do with that material legacy of that island and the former prison. So what happened, I want to give you one example, what happened with the former prison fence is that it was brought up by a South African artist and this artist in collaboration with an American jewelry designer launched a jewelry brand that actually uses the physical heritage of the fence in in the actual jewelry that you can now buy via internet so that's that in itself has created all these discussions about you know is this about globalizing the memory and making part people part of that global memory or is it just a way of marketizing memory and neglecting the needs of the local community from that i think it's a very very difficult and sensitive subject. So I'm really interested in this idea of selectivity and kind of um, seeing how history has been marketed in certain ways. And I think um, going back to the issue of displacement that we were talking about earlier, do you think that when a particular community or group of people becomes displaced during a conflict, because of the way histories are presented selectively, is there a danger that their experiences or perspectives get written out of history? I think that danger is there and it is intended by those displacing communities. I think it's, it's a way of moving them away. I think you will find plenty of examples in this, um, in the South African context where apartheid was very much about spatially segregating um, people from each other and the poorer you were, and of course, you know, if you weren't white, the, the further away you were sent from the city centers. So that had the immediate effect of pushing you to the margins economically and politically, but it also has long-term effects in terms of how memories are constructed. So if you're a tourist today and you visit, say, Cape Town, what you will see is the kind of standard memorials, museums and monuments, and you will take a tour. And, you know, often people take walking tours and then you will only see a selected set of memorials. Um, there is now a trend 
you know, that marginalized communities are reclaiming public space. So this is easier for some than for, for others. So there is the so-called District 6 Museum of people who were evicted from a very central area of Cape Town, District 6. They've actually managed to get hold of a building to, to, to create an exhibition about their experience of displacement. And in, in that sense, they're very successful because a lot of tourists will know about this place. But then there is another museum I've been I've written about. This is the Wandler Migrant Labour Museum. This is about 40 miles outside Cape Town, and it's a community who's been very much marginalised um, in many ways. And they've also started a museum to attract tourists, among others, to attract visitors and tell their stories. But it's it's much harder for you to get to this place. You need, of course, there is no train. You need to to be able to afford a taxi. You need to know about the place, um, and. For them, it's much harder to get their stories articulated and heard. So I think what you're just saying, um, this displacement in material location has very long-term ramifications in terms of how you're able to communicate your memories. Yeah, and I would say it's also about um, who is displaced and whose stories um, we are sort of focusing on or, um, or choosing uh, to ignore. So there's a lot of... Um, power really to be considered uh, in that question. Um, I mean, just thinking of, of the work that I've been doing both on uh, refugees into uh, Europe and sort of so-called native refugees uh, in, in Cyprus. Um, there's, uh, there, there can be very differing ways in which to remember and, and in which to um, commemorate uh, displacement and, and refugeehood. Um, and even in the ways to go back um, to the question of the place of um, art today, we see a lot of discussion about how, um, how the refugee experience of people arriving on Europe's uh, shores today and also dying on Europe's uh, shores today um, are being um, depicted and uh, sort of uh, displayed and, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of um, art that is uh, that is inspired by that. Um, again, I think it is, as Stephanie was saying, a very um, difficult uh, question to navigate uh, because it is it is very much about um, on what kind of basis in terms of power relations are these stories uh, being told. And if I could bring us back to the very, very broad theme of this group of podcasts on history and politics as somewhat of a conclusion. Um, do you think that history and politics broadly is something that should be promoted or do you think it's more than it's worth? I mean, I suppose as a political scientist in the broadest terms, I would definitely echo your call for a much more historical awareness of political science because I think it was... Robbie Shulliam, who said recently, um, talked about our tendency to theorize in abstract terms. And I think that's one of the things that we've done a lot in international relations. And we kind of thought that this, you know, this abstraction defines the quality and value of the experience. And very much that abstraction comes from a very white Western kind of point of view. And, you know, we're assuming that this kind of idea is is to be universalized and has to be the same for everybody and whoever doesn't fit the framework is edited out 
of what we consider valid knowledge in the discipline. So not only would I actually echo his call for uh, a much more concrete and contextual understanding of what we consider valid knowledge, but also I think that one way of doing that would be through through being very aware of the historical context of, of, of the processes that we're investigating. And I don't just mean, you know, in a binary way of these orientalized remote places elsewhere in the world, even of our, our own worlds in a way. So yes, I would very much echo your call for much more conversation between the two subjects. Yeah, I would do the same. I think what is important here is that uh, the, the more concrete um, uh, concrete conversations we have, uh, the, the more nuance uh, we have in them. And, and I think that's um, definitely uh, a good thing. Thank you very much, Olga and Stephanie. I hope you've enjoyed this as much as we have today. And thank you to everyone listening at home. Don't forget to look out for our next podcast, as well as other events, articles and videos on our website and Facebook. And please like our page for more content on history and politics. Thank you for listening. Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.